Christian, what do you believe? In today's profession or confession of faith from Romans chapter 8, we, we affirm what we believe, our, our belief in Jesus as the one who has freed us from condemnation. We also affirmed as we recited that profession of faith that God is sovereign and that he is working all things for our good, for his glory, all according to his purpose. And we affirmed this morning from Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Christian, what do you believe? Sometimes we use a profession of faith from scripture like Romans 8. Other times we may use a profession of faith that is a historic profession of faith like the Nicene Creed. If we were able to have Moses with us today and ask Moses, what do you believe? He may very well recite this, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a profession of faith of ancient Israel. It functions very similar to our professions of faith today. It would be the equivalent of our Apostles' Creed. And today our goal is to examine this confession and to see the implications of such a profession of faith as we look at, the, at Moses' teaching about the reason to love God. As he teaches about his command that we would love God. And then as we consider Moses' point also in this sermon about this, this profession of faith, about the expression for love of God as we look at the heart. So let us pray as we ask God's blessing upon us as we turn to his word in Deuteronomy 6. Oh Lord our God, you are our God and you are the one true God. And may that great profession of faith frame everything that we think and say today. May it indeed be one of those biblical realities that frame our very lives as we leave this place this morning and seek to live as your people. So bless us, I pray, O God the Holy Spirit, with a powerful application of your word to our hearts even today. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now God's word for God's people. Please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll read the first nine verses. Our focus will be on verses 4, 5, and 6 today. But we'll read this section, verses 1 through 9, Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, and your, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of the Lord is eternal and stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect, reviving the soul. And may God revive our souls even today. And so we want to begin by first looking at Moses giving us here in this passage a reason to love God. And it is a reason that is given in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Moses has been emphasizing, if you look back at chapter 4, as you look at chapter 5, as you look in the first three verses of chapter 6, he has been emphasizing to the new generation there just east of the Jordan waiting to go in and take the land under Joshua's leadership. He has been emphasizing to them, be careful to do all the things that God has commanded. Be careful to do all the things that I am teaching you that God has given to me to give to you. In chapter 6, verse 4, he gives the fundamental reason Israel is to love God by obeying his commands, by being careful to keep his commands. The Shema, translated here in verse 4, means listen carefully. Moses commanded the new generation to pay attention and to embrace this reality, this truth about God that he is about to give them. That this will be a reason for them to be careful to to love God by obeying all those commands that he has given them. And this is what Moses told the new generation about God. Who is God? The Lord Yahweh. The covenant name for God. The Lord Yahweh, our God. The Lord Yahweh is one. The new generation was to answer the question, who is God, by saying this. By professing faith in Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. He is exclusively our God, and he is uniquely the one true God. There is no other. So here we find a very clear and powerful theological statement affirming monotheism. And Moses has already taught about monotheism as he's been preaching to this new generation. If you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 35, to you, he says to the new generation, it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. This confession or profession was fundamental to Israel's faith and it's fundamental to our faith as well. Our worldview depends on affirming or rejecting 
this truth about God. A worldview is simply defined as one's view of reality. It might be understood as a belief system, presupposition and convictions. And these presuppositions or convictions govern how one views life, one's outlook on life. Now, there are many expressions of worldviews in our world today, but they all come down to but two worldviews when you get right down to the very core of the matter. And one is a biblical worldview, and one is a man-centered worldview. If you don't have a biblical worldview, whatever other worldview you might have, it ultimately is distilled down to a man-centered worldview. Let me give you an example. King David lived about 1,000 B.C., and a core truth about reality that governed his outlook on life as well as those other true Israelites that were under his reign is Moses' confession. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so David then represents one who might, we might say, had a biblical worldview, an outlook on life governed by God's word. In particular, an outlook on life that was centered and founded on this, this reality, this truthful reality about God, that Yahweh was David's personal God, the God of Israel, and Yahweh is the one true God, the only God. That governed much of how David understood and made sense out of his world. That's how a worldview operates. And it's true for us today. Think of our outlook on life if we denied, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. We would not have a biblical worldview, would we? We would have a man-centered worldview. So this confession of Moses is a core component, not the only component, but a core component of having a biblical worldview, having an outlook on life that is consistent with who God is. Now contrast that with Homer, the Greek, who lived about the time of David, And Homer's great question was, how do I make sense out of this world? He wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, which really are narrations of these Greek Olympian gods and goddesses. Edith Hamilton expressed what she called the miracle of Greek mythology this way, and I quote, a humanized world, men freed from paralyzing fear of an omnipotent unknown, end quote. In other words, Homer tried to make sense out of this fearful world, and he made sense out of it by coming up with these, this, uh, human, these human deities. Homer's human gods, according to Edith Hamilton, made heaven a familiar place. Greek mythologists transformed a world full of fear into a world of beauty. Now, the the deities 
of Greek mythology, the gods and goddesses are distinguished from mere mortals like us by power, not morality. They were in many cases more corrupt than mortals, just more powerful. But Homer sought to make sense out of the world, and he did so by embracing, developing a man-centered worldview expressed in a polytheistic religion. Now, why do I bring this up? David representing monotheism, Homer representing polytheism. The point I want to make is that Moses and the new generation and those who would live after Moses and this new generation like David and like us were surrounded by cultures that embraced a man-centered worldview. And in many cases, it was a man-centered worldview expressed in polytheism. And the new generation would cross the Jordan River and go into a land where the indigenous people were polytheists. And the point I want to make is Moses, Moses and the new generation needed a constant reminder of who God is what they believed about God, that they would be grounded in orthodoxy, that they would be grounded in a biblical worldview so they may make sense out of this new land that they were inhabiting, that they would make sense out of the opposition that they would be facing, that they would make sense out of how they were to live in this land, that they would make sense out of life, and so we find that Moses gave Israel this, this profession of faith that said, Yahweh is the exclusive God, he is our God, Yahweh is unique God, he is the one true God, and there is no other Therefore, how should you live? And we see Moses later in chapter 6 telling us how we should live. Look at verses 13 and 14. In light of this profession of faith, the Shema, in light of the fact that all of these cultures around us are polytheists and we're monotheists, how should we live? It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Deuteronomy 6, 13. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods. You shouldn't be polytheists. The gods are the peoples who are around you. You're to live differently than the people around you. We face the same challenge today. The prevailing worldview in our country and in our world is a man-centered worldview. It may come in a different color, it may come in a different book cover, it may come in a different form, but when you simply distill everything down to its basic elements, every worldview that is not a biblical worldview is a man-centered worldview, it's man making it up to make sense out of the world. And we experience the same pressure that the new generation would experience so they cross the Jordan and go into the promised land, pressure to conform to that polytheistic culture, pressure to turn from God and to embrace another God that is not a God. <laughs> but we must confess, we must live by, 
we must view the world, we must make sense out of the world by confessing, here, O Christian, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Secondly, Moses taught the proper response to the exclusiveness and uniqueness of God, and that is love. Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So here Moses addresses the nature of love. He commanded Israel. This is a command. He commanded Israel to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might or strength. And the passage that Brandon read earlier from Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus doesn't use heart but uses mind. And some commentators believe that the Hebrew concept of heart includes mind, so there's no real discrepancy there. But the point is, the reason Moses and Jesus says, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength is that Israel was to love God with their whole being. Every fiber of them was to be in love with God and was to demonstrate love for God. It was an all-encompassing love for God. Every aspect of their being. And that all-encompassing love for God testified to the fact that, that they were in an exclusive relationship with God. He is our God. It also testified to the fact that he is uniquely God. He is the one true God, and there is no other. So a picture of this we might think about as being marriage. The husband and wife's love for one another is testified to the fact that they are in an exclusive relationship and they are uniquely in love with one another as husband and wife. So I love Renee exclusively and uniquely. She's my wife. And vice versa, right? Very good. Our love for God is to be at such a degree that people look at us and say, oh my, that person's in an exclusive relationship with Yahweh, just like they may look at a husband and say, oh my, he is in an exclusive relationship with his wife. Our love for God should be at such a degree, so all-encompassing, that people look at us and they say, the God they serve must be the one true God, unique. Just as a wife, her love for her husband, people may say, that's a unique relationship. Moses helps us see the nature of love, but he also helps us see a primary way we demonstrate love. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 17. And though we're kind of sitting on verses 4, 5, and 6, I want to look at other verses here in this sixth chapter. Deuteronomy 6, 17. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. This one verse is simply summarizes the, the basic thrust of the whole book of Deuteronomy. The whole book of Deuteronomy, as we said at the very beginning, is a book about covenant renewal. And covenant renewal necessitates a recommitment to obeying God. 
And the way we demonstrate love for God, one of the chief ways, or the chief way, is through obedience. This is what Jesus said, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Moses helps us understand that that love is a response not only to God's exclusiveness and uniqueness, but it's also a response to his love for us in redemption. Look at Deuteronomy 6.21. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. In other words, Israel was to remember the love that God had for them in this great redemptive moment when he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Yes, we are to respond to God God in love because he is exclusively our God. He is uniquely the one God, but also because God has loved us redemptively. And we see this in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. And then in our assurance of pardon this morning, Romans 5, 8, how has God loved us? But God shows his love for us in, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Moses commanded love as a natural response to God's uniqueness and exclusivity. But when we contemplate how much God has loved us in Christ Jesus, we can't help but love him back by obeying him, by total devotion to him. I'm reminded at this point of the great hymn Isaac Watts wrote in the last stanza where the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small love so amazing so divine demands my soul my life my all my total devotion thirdly Moses taught that the, that genuine love is an expression of the heart. The commandments written on the heart have an outward expression. So look at verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And he spends some time in verses 7 through 9 just giving some examples of the outward expression of the law written on the heart. God's, and, and what we find is that when God's commands are written on the heart, then that the reality of those commands outwardly should permeate every area, every sphere of our lives. And so he speaks about teaching our children and talking about the commands of God. By the way, you can't give away what you don't have, so the implication here is that you actually embrace the commands of God in, in the heart, but it, but it speaks about teaching them to your children that they also would understand that primarily the law is written on the heart to be obeyed out of the heart, that love of God flows from the heart. 
that we're to talk about them around our tables, that even as we're out strolling through our community, that which is on our heart spills over into testifying to the law and the commands of God. Now, it's unclear about these outward signs noted in verses 8 through 9, these little boxes that had Deuteronomy 6, 4 and some other scriptures in them called phylacteries that, that were to be worn on the hand and put literally <laughs> between the eyes. If you have one of those uh, headlamps that you have the band you put around, well, just think of having a little box there with Deuteronomy 6, 4 and some other scriptures there. And then the mezuzahs, which were little boxes that had scriptures in them that you were to put on the doorpost, even even at the gates of the city, which is the very center of the social and business and political life of, of the town, just a demonstration of how outward, what this outward expression of this individual's heartfelt commitment to the commands of God. Well, it really isn't clear if Moses intended this to be literally obeyed or if it's simply or physically obeyed or um, just symbolically obeyed, but the tradition in Israel is that they actually, many of them, wore these, these little boxes. But really the point is this, that if the law of God is written on the heart, there will be an outward expression. That's the point. And that's the way God intended it, that what is on the inside bubbles up and out in obedience in love for God and love for one's neighbor. The greater matter is not the outward expression. That little phrase, on the heart, points to the greater issue. It is the inward heart change that God brings about that results in an overflow of love and obedience from the heart. I suggest we think about the heart being the wellspring of love. You know the old saying, <clears throat> what's, in, what's in the well? This is a well that is dug. <laughs> what is in the well comes up in the bucket. Good water or bad, what is in the heart comes out, good or bad. And here, what is in the heart is to be the law and commands of God. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart really is the wellspring of living. We also may think of the heart being the epicenter of love, not merely the wellspring of love, but the epicenter of love. And so an epicenter, when you think about it in terms of an earthquake, is, is the, the, the position on the surface of the earth just above the power center of that earthquake, the epicenter. And you know that once that, that power is released, then there are shock waves that emanate out from that epicenter. And I think that love that is written on the heart that spills over is like an, an that, that power source, that epicenter, that shock waves of true obedience and, and love that, that, that emanates out. The wellspring of love, the heart. The epicenter of love, the heart. 
Another image about the heart, and you know I had to use an illustration dealing with coffee, is the overflow of a cup. And so if you are pouring coffee into a cup and you keep pouring, it overflows into the saucer. Paul speaks about the heart overflowing with love. Ephesians 3, 16 through 19, I'll just read a couple of verses here that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, that you may be filled. And Paul's intent here is filled to overflowing with all the fullness of God. Moses' words in verse 6 point to the commandment not merely being written on stone tablets, which it was, but more importantly, being written on a new heart, a heart that had been transformed and changed, a heart that had been regenerated, the theological term that we use, a heart that looks like the heart Jesus talked about with Nicodemus being born again, a heart that might be reflected in Paul's words from Titus 3, 5, and 6, renewed by the Holy Spirit, the law written on a heart that is alive for God, a, a, a heart that, that seeks to love God, a heart that has the ability to love God in obedience. A new heart, the very new heart that is promised in Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. As we fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses will say to this new generation these words in verse 6 of chapter 30, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and your heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. The law written on a heart, not a stone heart, but a heart that is circumcised, a, a new heart that is given by God, a heart that has now the ability and capacity to love God by obeying God. This is what Moses is talking about here. This is an implication of that profession of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He calls us to love from our hearts, our new hearts. So Moses gave the one great reason to love God in this profession of faith, the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The one great reason to love God. He gave the one great command that really embodies all ten of the commands and that is to, to love our exclusive and unique God with an all-encompassing love 
loving God with our whole person. And he gave the one great source for love and obedience, and that is a heart transformed by the, overf by the overflowing grace and love of God. That the law that is written on our heart, that new heart that God gives us, might spill out into every sphere of our life. Well, a half-full glass will not overflow. A half-full glass will only overflow if you keep pouring water on it till overflowing. Our hearts can't overflow either if we lack faith in Christ. But our hearts will overflow, as Paul speaks about in Ephesians 3. If we turn to Jesus in faith, this is what Jesus said in John 7, 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The implication of hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is that we would believe and trust Christ that we might obey and love God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your power. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for the exclusive relationship that you have made with us, your people. We thank you, O oh God, for the command uh, to love and for the ability that you give us to follow that command. A new heart that now is able to obey and to love and to seek you. I pray, O oh God, that you might cause us to embrace in our heart and to stand firm in the midst of a culture that is constantly trying to sway us away from you, that we would be diligent in seeking you, that we would be faithful in seeking you, that we would be resolute in seeking you, and that the expression of seeking you might be, that outward expression might not be phylacteries and the sort, but would be obedience out of love in every sphere of our lives. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.